1972, a crack commando unit was sent to a liturgical prison by a canonical court for a crime they didn't commit. These men promptly escaped from a maximum security diocesan stockade to the ecclesial underground. Today, still wanted by the Vatican, they survive as soldiers of fortune. If you have a problem, if no one else can help, and if you can find them, then you should listen to Libra Cristo War College. Welcome to Wednesday War College. My name is Jesse Romero, got Kyle Clement, uh, the, the, the top lay Catholic in the world when it comes to spiritual warfare, bar none. And I uh, just want to mention to all of you that uh, the month of September is dedicated to Our Lady of Sorrows. So the month of September, what I'm doing <clears throat> is I'm, play, I'm praying the Dolo Rosary every single day after Holy Mass for the month of September. So, hey, join me. We got about 10 more days left. Uh, you know, after you get out of Mass or you can't go to Mass after your morning prayers, uh, join me in the Dolo Rosary, the Seven Sorrows of Mary. That's what I'm doing every single day for the month of September uh, for uh, out of love to Our Lady of Sorrows. Kyle, welcome, brother, to Wednesday War College. I know you have a lot of love for uh, Our Lady of Sorrows. In fact, you're you're actually, I think, the only lay member of the DeLoreans, correct? Uh, great to be with you, Jess. Thanks so much for having me. And yes, that's correct. I am the only Segundi or secondary member, uh, second order of the DeLoreans. Um, that's something that we we hope to expand. Uh, we're also starting a group of lay men um, in a, um, a servite type order. Um, we're in very interesting times. Uh, and so lots sure of things are. kind of uh, on the horizon. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, we sure are, and uh, yeah, we need it. We need added prayer power, without a doubt. <clears throat> um, Kyle, today's also the feast of the uh, of Saint Andrew Kim and 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 the Korean martyrs. Well, when when you read the stories of the Japanese martyrs, the Korean martyrs, uh, uh, we as Catholics here in America, we could stand to learn a lot from them in terms of their courage and fortitude. Correct. Well, you're absolutely right, and it's interesting that you bring that. That that's in the uh, new calendar, of course. Um, Andrew Kim and and uh, but the story of martyrdom is ancient. Today, in the um, in the traditional calendar, is Saint Eustace. And here is a decorated Roman soldier who converted, and he is uh, martyred with his wife and his children. They canceled the whole family uh, in this martyrdom of Saint Eustace. Uh, it's the vigil of. Um, the Apostle Matthew. It is also in the old cam calendar an ember day, and these are, we've lost such so much uh, beauty and depth. Um, and um, so I, this is a, a plug for Reclamation Theology. You can go to www.montecristo.net and subscribe to Reclamation Theology. But it brings us. Um, uh, it, it's a nostalgic look at some of the things that we've lost: the diminution of martyrdom. Um, but, uh, Andrew Kim is not taking anything away from Andrew, Andrew Kim and companions. We are just losing sight of what it is to be a martyr. We don't even want to be uncomfortable, uh, much less humiliated, much less murdered for our Lord. Amen. Yep. <clears throat> You're right. We, uh, we want to play nice with the world right now. And that's what's happening right now. In fact, my heart is crushed, uh, to see, uh, Pope Francis and Bill Clinton, uh, collaborating together uh, and talking about issues that have nothing to do with faith and morals, talking about issues that have to do with globalism and 
that just uh, that that's like a dagger in the heart of every Catholic to see that. Uh, but uh, well, it, moving, it certainly is. Yeah, it well, certainly Kyle, is. Scripturally, got... I'm always scripturally I'm always reminded of the phrase on the day of the Passion, or as we're leading up to the Passion of our Lord, um, and it says when they conspired to crucify Christ. And the, the Herodians and the Pharisees became friends that very day. And you're mm-hmm. seeing the uh, Herodian Bill Clinton and the Pharisaic Francis. Um, whenever you can get them in the same camera frame, the world is not in a good place. Yeah, that's not a good alliance. And it also reminds me, Kyle, of <clears throat> it was uh, Israel and, and Rome, and imp- pagan imperial Rome. They colluded to kill Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, and now it seems like if uh, the church, which is the new Israel of God, and uh, and 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 this pagan, you know, Roman Empire, which is the the world, the unbelieving world, they're colluding today. The new world order and and uh, you know many people over in, in in our in our in our church, they're colluding to destroy the mystical body of Christ. That's the church. So I see a parallel right now, <clears throat> but. Um, sure. Very, very astute, and I agree totally, Jesse. Yeah. So, Kyle, let's uh, a couple of questions from the audience here. Here's one: somebody asks, "What does knock on wood mean?" Uh, what would you respond to them? What does knock on wood mean? Okay. So, um, first of all, is let's look at everything from a traditional, not a modernist relativist, but a traditional Catholic. What is the significance of the object to salvation? First and foremost, this is what you ask yourself. So what is the reference? What is being glorified or what is being corrupted, parodied, mocked? Because it's one or the other. The word is wood. What does that do to your Catholic heart? When you hear the word wood. The word of the cross. You bet. Yeah. Bless, bless the wood, bless the nails. And then you go back further. What was the original wood? Uh, the tree in the garden. Okay, yeah, right. Yeah, correct. So we see, we see the redemption of all wood through Christ dying on a wooden cross. We see the redemption of all trees. We see all of these things. Now let's look at the mocking. So what would it be to knock on wood, this superstitious, this, this threefold in, in um, the threefold knock, anytime three, where, what is that? That's Trinity. So when you say knock on wood, this is a mocking of the Trinity being present on the wood of the cross. But mm. what it means also is it's a druidic practice whereby the spirits were attached to the inanimate object, the familiar object, the tree. And so in order to summon the demon, one would knock on the tree, knock on the wood, this summoned the demon. And then the deal was made. This is all that um, druid references to mystical oaks and to various uh, trees, um, many of them even named, many of them um, venerated. And it's really interesting to watch uh, how this was done in um, in pagan times and in ancient times. And remember the great Saint Boniface. Oh, he is right. murdered horribly. He is murdered horribly, but he did fell the the oak and show by 
Um, and, and, and by doing so, he destroys the anchoring object for the demon that was oppressing uh, the region. And so he exercises the region by felling the, the oak. And then several years later, he is horribly murdered for this. So That's knock right. on wood is a summoning, some superstitious summoning of demon, but it's mocking the Holy Cross. The soul tree that St. Boniface uh, cut down, what were the people doing? What, were the Germans worshiping this tree as a, as a deity or what, what, what was the context behind that? So in the, the context was, is the tree served as the seat, the attachment point, the place where the demon could come and go and appear on earth. And that's a mocking um, of, of temple theology, of the mercy seat, of all of these things. And so they would go to the oak, offer blood sacrifice to uh, summon the demon and to request uh, whatever it was that that was their request. And their offering, the counterfeit of the sacrifice, their offering, the magnitude of their offering and the depravity of their offering increased um, their power or their response. And so this includes child sacrifice. This is. All of the, you can't make this stuff up. It, it, it all overlays, and this is the satanic aspect of abortion. The regional demon, uh, the principality or higher class demon in a region will claim every untimely death and every, every bit of shed blood is blood sacrificed offered to Satan. Um, that's, that's the world that we've always lived in, and it's the world we currently live in. Wow, good stuff. Uh, so here's a longer question, Kyle. Somebody asks, uh, I would like to ask about the topic regarding demonic possession and exorcisms done on such a case. My first question is, I heard that Father Ripperger said that a laity with proper authority, say a parent, can say the imprecatory prayers. Also, he said, if I remember correctly, in the VMPM YouTube channel video with you and Mr. Kyle Clement and Dr. Dan Schneider, he says... Uh, now, of course, correct me if I'm wrong in understanding this, but if it's right, then what would be the difference between a priest saying these imprecatory prayers versus a layperson with proper authority? Would the difference be simply that the priest is, well, the priest, or is there a proper understanding of the difference here, which I am missing? I'm not sure if I really understand the question entirely. I think he's asking, since both a priest and a father of the house can do imprecatory prayers over over the, maybe their son, you know, a ch- the child in the family, and the priest can as well. So if both of them can drive out the demon, what's the difference between the father of the home and the priest uh, or the exorcist? I think that's what he's asking. Uh, that's the way I understand what your what the inquiry is. So let's go at it this way. First of all, let's let's discuss the power and the authority that the father has. Uh, the biological father, the head of household. So he has both power and authority through the natural law, through his office as father, biological father, and his office as head of household. Those are two different offices, and they operate two different ways. And so let's talk about that. Hold that thought, my friend. Hold that thought. Yeah. Wednesday War Call at Jess Romero, Kyle Clement. We got some spiritual warfare questions from the audience. Uh, We'll be right back. And then we're going to be talking about how to decommission tattoos. Uh, You don't want to miss that. That's going to be some good stuff. Be back. 
Wednesday War College, yes, Romero, Kyle Clement. For those of you that don't know Kyle, uh, Kyle is the only lay person who's part of the DeLorean, <clears throat> the DeLorean uh, Fathers. He's a, an associate. Or what's what's the term, Kyle? I'm a Segundi, which means Segundi. I'm a member of the Second Order. Got, got it. Uh, Kyle's also Father Chad Ripperger's right-hand man. So you're listening to the most literate, uh, most informed layperson on spiritual warfare and exorcism in the world right now. In fact, Dr. Dan Schneider, who, who, who's also on every other Wednesday, he just came out with a book. It's called Libra Cristo, <clears throat> a, a, a spiritual field manual of spiritual warfare. These are essentially, Dr. Dan Schneider, in, in, when you read the book, you can see, they're de- essentially the lectures of Kyle Clement and Father Ripperger put in book form. It's the phase two part of the, of the fa- four-phase protocol but that whole book that Dr. Dan Schneider put, uh, by and large, it's really the intellectual property of Kyle Clement and, and, uh, and Father Chad Ripperger uh, after years of working together. And, uh, and, and, and Dan was just tasked with the job of putting this four-phase protocol together and kind of polishing it up because obviously he's a theologian. So he kind of cleaned up uh, and tightened up some of the language. But uh, yeah, there, there you go. There you have it. So Kyle, let me ask the question again for the people I'll just I'll just make it short. <clears throat> the the questioner asked, okay, a priest can do imprecatory prayers, drive out a demon. A father, the father of the house, uh, by his office can also drive out a demon over his son and daughter or his wife through imprecatory prayers. So the question is, so if both of them can do that, what's the difference? I guess that's what the questioner is asking. Okay. And so um the it operates the father and the he has the authority and power through two different venues or avenues one is the office as head of household and the other is office as biological father our our father of the child of the person um and so let's talk about that for a moment because they are different and then i've got a little story that really will help illustrate that so by the natural law Head of household is responsible for the souls and is in a position of authority of the soul over the souls within that household. And this is we find this is an extremely operative concept. He is also has a geographical authority over the household itself. Now, household is an ancient term that goes back, meaning how much what is the property that the house, the name, the clan holds? So household, that's where that comes from. What is he charged with protecting? What is within the wall? What is within the boundary? This is like a a sovereignty within a sovereignty. Um, Your classic example, Jesse, is you own a home and it has a property line. That is your household and it's within a city. So it's a sovereignty within a sovereignty. Mm, Got it. Does that make sense? Yeah, good. Yep. And so the demon sees, because he sees truth, he sees these structures uh, as operative in the natural law. So you can command, within your household, you can command demons that are within your boundaries by your authority, your power and authority as uh, head of household. Which means if I'm a possessed person and I come onto your property... You can command the demon in me requisite with it being on your property. In other words, you can tell it you can't manifest while you're here. You can't cause any problems, etc. 
I, I bind you, I, Jesse Romero, head of this household, bind you within these confines. And that's, that's an authoritative binding. Kyle, I can tell you that, that, that it actually works. I won't get too graphic, but there's a family member of mine, <clears throat> extended family member, that, that's a case. Uh, the family member came over to visit. The, their, uh, my uh, relatives asked if they can come and I can just uh, spend a week, get away in the Arizona desert with me and my wife. <clears throat> and, you know, we, we did what we always do, do, daily mass, our morning prayers, grace before meals, morning rosary. And I said, you're going to be here for a week, so you're going to cooperate with all of this, or I'm going to put you back on, on, on the bus and send you back uh, to your parents. So she, the person said, absolutely, I'll cooperate. I'm, I'm glad that you guys took me in. And this person is, uh, it's, 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 is, this family member is diabolically afflicted uh, at a pretty high level. And what I would do every morning and every evening, I would pray over my house. I would, I would do that exterior consecration prayer of the house in the morning and evening. Uh, and I would, I would bless my house, pray over my house, do a perimeter prayer, and I'd go to bed. <clears throat> this relative of mine told me, this person that's a case, <clears throat> told me, um, I'll, I won't say the relation we have, told me, uh, the last five years, I'm tormented every single night. Demons come through the walls. Uh, they come and attack me. I have nightmares. I, I sleep with the lights on all night. Uh, they have sex with me. Uh, sh uh, this person told me, the last five nights here at your house and at your wife's house, I've never had a more peaceful night's rest in five years. No nightmares, no attacks, no incubus, succubus demons, uh, no scratches in the morning. I have never had a more peaceful uh, five days in my life than sleeping here at your house. Uh, and so all, all I was doing was just doing the regular my regular prayers that I do every day, pray for my house, bless my house, uh, perimeter prayer. And I can tell you, this family member of mine looked at me eye to eye with tears in their in their eyes and said, there's something different about your house. I haven't felt like this anywhere. And so all I did, Kyle, was just apply the, the some of the things that I've learned from you and Dan the last couple of years and uh, it, it, as a part of my prayer protocol here in the house. And it seems to work. It absolutely does, Jesse. Um, with and there's some caveats here. Uh, your wonderful story that illustrates the point. Here are the caveats: is that here's how the authority and the, and, and can be eroded. You have the power, but what the demon's going to do is uh, work on the authority. Here's how authority can be compromised, and that is um, if you change your practices. If you say, well. Uh, cousin cousin Esmeralda's coming and, and blessings uh, make her nervous. So we're not going to say the blessings at, at meals. Um, that sacred heart picture, that's a little bit hard for her to look at. So we're going to take that down. When you start compromising the integrity of your home, the line of sight devotions, your daily devotional practices, if you in any way compromise that to accommodate another human, you've just abrogated a big chunk of your authority. That's wow. the first way that authority is is damaged if you're saying a daily rosary and you don't say it because billy bob Susie, and their children are there for a few days you've just compromised your authority here's the second way you compromise it 
is the demon not only will laugh at you, but he will take you to the woodshed if you're saying you, you know, be bound in my house, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And then you're viewing pornography or you're involved in in some type of ongoing habitual mortal sin. If you do that, the demon will take you to the woodshed and he laughs at you because a man's the the merit uh, by which a man wields his authority is purity. It is it is purity. It's that simple. And so when you're living the right life, doing the right thing, and you're prayed up, you're staying prayed up, you're doing what you're supposed to do because you're pursuing holiness, not because you're afraid of the demon. Now you are a mighty warrior. Yeah, that's why the Lord, I think, says, uh, you know, blessed are the clean of heart or the pure of heart. They shall see the children of God. And David also says, Lord, create in me a clean heart. Yeah, everything is based on uh, uh you know, uh, a right relationship with God. Yeah. Uh, and it's funny, Kyle, this family member also told me, cause I have a wall that has about a hundred crucifixes. And the only thing that this family member did tell me in the five days that they stood here was that they said there, that wall causes me pain when I look at, and it's right when you walk into my house on the left side of the wall, I've got a hundred different crucifixes and they're all blessed. <clears throat> and, uh, and, uh, this family member would say, that wall scares me. That wall causes me a lot of pain. I said, well, <laughs> I said, uh, uh, if it makes you feel uncomfortable, that's that's too bad. This is my house and those crucifixes are going to stay there. Yeah. So when this family member was here, I just did everything that I normally do. I, I didn't change. I didn't change a bit. Uh, this person. So now, yeah. So in this case, she was not your direct descendant. In other words, no, she was no. not one of your children. Nope. So this illustrates the this illustrates the point, and so your authority over over her and whatever was with her was by your role as head of household. That was the geographical aspect. Now let's talk about the biological aspect. The biological aspect is over your children, your grandchildren. This is flesh of my flesh, bone of my bone, and that is not limited to geography. Wherever in the world your daughter is uh, until she's married, wherever your son is until he's of the age of majority, um, you have spiritual authority. Um, and so that's, that's not limited to geography, and that is a different office. That is the office of generative fatherhood. That's through procreation. That's through flesh of my flesh, bone of my bone. That goes beyond household. Got it. People ask a question oftentimes, Kyle, you know, once your, your, your kids leave the house now, you know, they start their own family. Obviously they've reached the age of majority. <laughs> I tell them you can still bless them, but you have to bless them in a deprecatory manner. Ask God to do the blessing. You know, when you, when you pray, say, Lord, you may, you bless my children and protect them in the name of the father, son, and the Holy spirit. Uh, you can't do it any longer in a, in an imprecatory manner. Once they've reached the age of majority, and they've left the house and they've got their own family, correct? And so you, you had um, correct in the way you stated, but let's go backwards. Once they have their own family, once they're in their own family, that's absolutely correct. Once they've left the house, that's different for boys versus girls if the girls are not yet married. Got it. So because the man is responsible for the integrity, spiritual integrity and protection of his daughter, no matter her age, until she's either married or entered religious life, 
then this gets into a really tough spot because if she's living outside the protection of his household but still under his authority, this can turn into a worst case scenario. Got it. Yeah, that there's a lot of cases like that that uh, yeah, that uh, I'm sure most of us know about. So on the question, so the person is asking, so if, a, if the father can do this through natural law and a priest can do it, uh, so what would be the difference? I think that's the, the question or that's what they're asking. Uh, I, I think the difference is, in my opinion, the priest does it through holy orders. He does it through sacerdotal ministry. Uh, so he, he probably does it through what? Divine positive law? Is that, is that how he receives his authority? That's correct, it's a, and that's exactly right. Is he is in the, the position of authority through divine positive law and the subjection of the soul uh, to his authority vis-a-vis the church, and so through the sacraments. And so the the um, the the soul is subjected to the authority of the priest through the sacraments, and the soul is subjected kind of- to the authority of the Father through providence. Oh God, you'll have to you'll have to say that when we come back. Uh, Wednesday War Calls, we'll be back. Stick around, don't go anywhere. Wednesday War Call, Jess Romero, Kyle Clement. Two-man car. Kyle, so we, that last sentence that you mentioned as you were talking about the difference of the power an authority of a husband, of a father, head of house, and a Catholic priest. That needs to be repeated again. That was that was right towards the end, and that was that was pure that was pure red meat. Okay, and so the priest, by his office, by his ordination, receives the power and authority, and then the person is subject to his power and authority through the sacrament through that person's affiliation or relationship with the church. And so um, that gives you the idea of how authority, power and authority is, is operative between the petitioner and the priest. Now, the person is subject to the authority of a biological father and to head of household by providence and by choices that they are making, but by providence. So one is by sacrament and one is by providence. But the, the offices, power comes and authority flows through those offices. And so that's a distinction to be made. Um, so every baptized person, if they were baptized in the Trinitarian form, then they fall under the authority of the priest to certain degrees. They're subjected to that priestly authority. And so I think that's a, uh, an important understanding and distinction. Now, here's the name that cuts across the office that cuts across all of this, and that is all creatures, all creatures, whether they're baptized or not, uh, humans, all humans may invoke the name of Jesus and have a relationship with Jesus. This This is a universal principle. This is Christ in John 6 saying, no one comes to the Father unless the Father beckons. No one comes to the Father unless he comes through me. So when the unbaptized person approaches the, um, the exorcist or the Catholic Church, this is that 
response to that that initiatory process and so they're reacting um and if there's a demon there he's reacting to the name of jesus that's who he's reacting now when he encounters a priest he's encountering a man who is ontologically configured to the almighty god as a priest as an in persona Christe. and so that's why a priest has the effect on an unbaptized energumen that he has wow that's that's deep. <clears throat> so even an unbaptized energumum <clears throat> um, can be liberated in the name of Jesus by a Catholic priest. That's what you're saying. Correct. And and actually, they can be liberated by the name of Jesus by someone else. And that's that's a demonstration of power, but not of authority. And that's a great segue into these other questions about um, women exorcists, lay exorcists, etc., so the question is not power in that instance, because it's the power of the name of Jesus, and anyone can wield that name. The question is, does the person have the authority? And that's why so many of these modern uh, models uh, break down, and the person in uh, practitioner, lay practitioner particularly, pays the price. Uh, they may well liberate the person. They may force the demon out responding to who is responding to the name of Jesus, but lacking the authority, they open themselves up to retaliation and it's usually visited upon their families. Kyle, which, which brings me to a third question from, from, uh, from one of the listeners. <clears throat> They're asking about St. Catherine of Siena. Uh, and apparently let me read on page 108 of father of book. An exorcist explains a demonic he doesn't say much, but he says a little bit. And I guess it's this is the question. The question is based on this statement from Father Amorth that says this. In the work of liberation, <clears throat> can the layman be more efficacious than the exorcist? It happens, certainly. For example, in the 14th century Tuscany, Italy, when a demoniac could not be liberated, he was sent to St. Catherine of Siena, who in virtue of her extremely tested faith, often succeeded where, where the exorcist could not. What matters, as I, as I have said, is faith, close quote. So the question is, the person as saying, is uh, regarding St. Catherine of Siena, uh, she was able to drive out a demon or did, did an exorcism when the priest gave up. That's what the questioner says. Is this true? <laughs> and what does this mean in regards to the theology of spiritual warfare? So I'll just simplify it. How and why did St. Catherine of Siena, she was able to drive out demons and uh, some of the priests were not able to at, at the time. I, I, I think in my mind, St. Catherine of Siena, <clears throat> here's, I'm going to take a stab at it. First of all, there's very few St. Catherine of Siena. She's a doctor of the church. Uh, you know, her level of holiness and her level of suffering surpasses what most people will endure in their lifetime. Also, she, God the Father spoke to her personally in a locution God the Father doesn't speak to most people. So St. Catherine of Siena, <clears throat> you can't take an exceptional person like this and make a, a, a normative practice. I think also, like Father Amor says, she was probably able to drive out demons because of her extreme holiness. Uh, and also, I'm sure she wasn't using the imprecatory rite of uh, you know 1614 St. Charles Borromeo because it wasn't, even, it wasn't around back then. I think uh, her holiness was just her prayers of supplication and petition and the fact that, as James 5.16 says, the prayers of a righteous person has much power. Uh, and that's why God was able to use her to drive demons out. This is an exceptional case 
I don't think this is the norm. Uh, where am I? Go ahead and clean clean up what I just said. Well, you make some very, very good points, and I think you're right. The exception accentuates the norm. Uh, the exception accentuates the rule. But let's go back and understand. You brought up something almost in passing that is is what is operative here, and that is this. St. Catherine of Siena lived from 1347 to 1380, 33 years. And she wasn't declared a doctor of the church until 1970 by Paul VI. There are four female doctors of the church, two of whom were declared so by Paul VI in 1970, Teresa of Avila and Catherine of Siena. The other two female doctors, Hildegard, uh, who is uh, Brandisi, who is also uh, an exorcist who lived in 1098, was a mystic. She was called the Sybil of the Rhine. She is declared a doctor by Benedict XVI. And then the final and latest doctor, female doctor of the church, is Therese of Lisieux by John Paul II. So in all of the history of declaring doctors of the church, some 36 of them, four of whom are females, we don't have a female doctor of the church until 1970, two of them declared within a week of each other by Paul VI. That's one observation. Second observation. The two exorcists mentioned, Catherine of Siena, who was a laywoman, a third order Franciscan, and then um, Hildegard, uh, Hildegard of Brandisi, uh, a mystic Sybil of the Rhine. She lived in 1098. Catherine of Siena died in 1380. Both of these well before the Council of Trent. The Council of Trent codified exorcism and very uh, succinctly limited the authority, who can be an exorcist, how to be an exorcist, etc. And then when St. Charles Borromeo, as a result of the Council of Trent, writes the formal rite of exorcism of 1614 and relegates and restricts all the prayers related to exorcism as either minor or major, that is all relegated to priestly exercise. And so now you have in the Roman Church since 1614, exorcism is limited to office. And so you can talk about this all you want, but it's it's not operative. And Catherine would, of Siena, I would propose, would be the first one to say, were she alive today, that that um, that authority is no longer in the hands of the laity. It's totally relegated to the priest. It's the same as uh, proclamation of the gospel within the, the mass has to be a cleric, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So this is the regulation of authority, not the regulation of power. So the observation that this was done at that time, it's no longer applicable. It, it may be a historical footnote, but it in no way enables or entitles the laity uh, to engage in these exorcistic practices over people that they don't have direct authority because that authority was limited to exorcism by office, Council of Trent, formalized in the 1614 rite by St. Charles Borromeo. Well, that answers that question. That, uh, that's a pretty clear answer. And once again, uh, you'll even find in the New Testament, there's like, there's St. Catherine of C We don't know how she prayed, first of all. Uh, I don't think she prayed in precatory prayers. I think she looked at the New Testament and she saw many holy women that would do prayers of supplication and intercession for their possessed children. They would go right to our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, the women, they would plead with him and Jesus would, uh, 
would deliver their children, uh, their sons and daughters from demonic possession. And I think uh, St. Catherine of Siena probably looked at, the, looked at the biblical pattern of women in the New Testament and how they operated. And she probably did the same thing. But, be, 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 but because of her level of holiness, uh, this is why, again, once again, Father Amor says uh, it was because of her holiness and her faith that she had, she had that, she probably had that charism, not the office. She had that charism to drive out demons, but that's not normative. This is not normative Christianity. That's the exception. But yeah, like you said, after the council of Trent, now it's been codified. So now we've got, uh, now we've got boundaries that we have to, we have to abide by. Correct. That's precisely right. And Jesse, on multiple occasions, we've had the opportunity to be joined by, uh, religious and especially mature religious in solemn sessions. And I will tell you that the demon's reaction to a woman of mature years who has lived a 30, 40 year religious vocation, the demon is terrified of, of this virgin, of this sacred um, corpus. And it is the aversion to the living sacred is what it is. And we've, we've seen it on multiple occasions. And these women have no idea that they have this effect on the demon. Uh, they're there to pray. They're there because there's a loved one. There's there's some reason that they're in that session. But the demon very much gives deference in the same way that he has an aversion to the truly sacred. And I have no doubt that if these re- women religious were to, to lock eyes with the energumen and command the demon, he would do whatever they said. But they're not about to do that <laughs> because they realize that that's, that is the purview of the exorcist. And so... Um, one of the attributes of this, remember, is that they brought the woman to Teresa. Hold that thought. We'll be right back. Stick around. Don't go anywhere. One more segment. Wednesday War College, Jesse Romero, Kyle Clement, two-man car. <clears throat> We're talking about uh, all things spiritual warfare. Kyle, uh, I want, we, we won't have time. I'm gonna, next time I have you on on Wednesday, I'm going to have you go through the whole uh, decommissioning of tattoos. I, I'm going to take the entire show to do that because the protocol is fairly long and I want you to explain it j- just like you, 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 you explain things so well. But give us... <clears throat> give us a little bit of the background. I know in the book of Leviticus, there's a passage where the Israelites, you know, Moses tells the Israelites and he warns them about tattoos in the Old Testament. Give us a little backdrop on the culture of tattoos, uh, the theology of tattoos, the condemnation of tattoos in the Old Testament. Yes, in Leviticus chapter 19, it says, it says, <clears throat> um, Leviticus chapter 19, verse 28. You shall not make any cuttings in your flesh on account of the dead or tattoos or any marks upon you. I am the Lord. Leviticus 19, verse 28. So that was written to the Levite priest by Moses. So just give us kind of a little overview because next time I have you on, I'm going to want you to go through the actually decommissioning. Uh, I want you to take the whole show. But tell us a little bit about the, the... the, the theology of tattoos. But before you do that, Kyle, what are you up to right now? And how can people uh, track with you and get a hold of some of your podcast? Well, thanks, Jesse. Um, we, um, 
we're doing a lot of things. And so the podcast and um, the videos and, and audios, there's a lot of free stuff on the website, www.monte, M-O-N-T-E, Cristo, C-H-R-I-S-T-O dot net. Um, and so that brings you up to date on all the trainings and everything else. A couple of things to draw your attention to that may not be on there is we have ongoing exorcist training with Father Ripperger and the opportunity to sponsor a priest. We've got two priests coming from Africa this year, one from Indonesia. And so a lot of times these priests don't have the funds um, either to travel and or to attend the training. <clears throat> You've also got diocese in the United States who do not have the funds to send an exorcist for training because of bankruptcy and various other issues. So if you'd like to entertain the thought of sponsoring a scholarship for an exorcist, um, that would be much appreciated. And so uh, you can uh, email info, I-N-F-O, at Monte, M-O-N-T-E, Cristo, C-H-R-I-S-T-O, dot net, and inquire on how to do that. I think it'd be a, uh, it's a win-win. You've got an exorcist priest praying for you and for your family, and you're, um, you're helping sponsor his training. We have trainings for mental health professionals. We have trainings for general practitioner priests. Father Ripperger this year is offering a priest-only retreat in uh, February um, for um, priests, and it's the title of it is Exhausting the Pastoral Remedy. And if you've got a priest that you would like to send on retreat, it'll meet the requirements for his yearly canonical retreat, uh, your priest. But this would be a great gift to give a priest is to send them on this priest-only retreat with Father Ripperger. It's going to be limited um, uh, attendance. But this retreat is going to focus on exhausting the pastoral remedy. So often we've, we've lost um, our pastors because they're not being trained as confessors. They're not being trained as, uh, as, as true pastors. They're being trained as diocesan administrators, and, and um, we've gotten away from that true fatherhood, that, that true uh, how to father a soul. We lost Kyle there. <clears throat> You're listening to Wednesday War College. Yes, Romero, Kyle Clement. And uh, we want to get into now a little bit about the history, the theology of tattoos. And uh, we lost Kyle for a second here, <clears throat> or he dropped off. Uh, some of the things that I do want to mention about tattoos... I was reading this uh, one mag, a Rolling Stone magazine when I was in the airport. And one of the guys from the Rolling Stone magazine, he was saying, uh, they, they interviewed a tattoo artist from the Rolling Stone magazine. Pretty famous guy. And he was admitting, in fact, I just, I just found it right now. Here it is. Rolling Stone magazine quoted famous tattoo artist Paul Booth. Very famous guy. Well known. Okay, Kyle, we got cut off, my friend. Go ahead, finish off your thoughts before we go on to the theology and the history of tattoos. No worries, no worries. Can you hear me okay? I can hear you perfect. Wonderful. And so, um, Father, this exhausting the pastoral response is, um, is so much needed today. And so if you know a good priest, um, this enables them to, to go deeper into their priesthood and the ability to help uh, and actually shepherd souls um, rather than a, just accompany them through a secular experience. And so Father's also going to be doing a um, an event in um, 
in Seattle um, that's coming up as a fundraiser. Um, I think that's going to be a uh, where you can join it online. You can get the um, details on that one. Father and I are in uh, the Diocese of Austin this next week. And then um, Father and I and Dan Snyder, Dr. Dan and Jesse are going to be at the Fullness of Truth Conference um, the 29th, 30th, and 1st, uh, 29th and 30th of September, 1st of October, down in Austin, Texas at the Kalahari Resort. So I'll get to see Jess next week yeah. and we'll get to all be together. Looking forward to that. And so to talk that kind of catches us up. Yeah, yeah. That, that, so that kind of catches us up on what we got going. Kyle, just want to want to talk a little bit about tattoos. Now I don't want to get into the decommissioning prayer yet, but I, I'm reading here, it says Rolling Stone magazine quoted famous tattoo artist Paul Booth as saying that while he is tattooing people, uh, quote, he allows his clients demons to help guide the needle, close quote. I'm I'm just wondering how many other guys that that uh, do tattoos. How many of them are actually like under their breath or in their mind? How many of them, first of all, are occultist? And and secondly, as as a as a as a person is sitting there getting their tattoos, I I'm just imagining uh, because I have read it in another Rolling Stone magazine. This one guy said that I curse the ink before. Uh, you know, so all the ink in my shop is cursed. Uh, he's an occultist. And some of these guys also admit that while they're doing the tattoos, they're asking, they're, 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 they're doing incantations and summoning demons and asking the demons to help them guide the needle. Uh, th- this probably happens more often than not, Kyle. So, I mean, this is just one of the many dangers of the whole world of tattoos, but tell us a little bit about the Leviticus prohibition, if you can, on tattoos. So the Leviticus, the Leviticus prohibition, and there are there are several areas of concern. Um, in each one of them, they don't operate cumulatively; they operate independently. Uh, what does that mean? It means of all of these reasons, each one in and of itself is significant and sufficient enough to um, avoid the practice, to, to absolutely not engage in the practice. And so I think that's an important observation to make. So each one of these reasons exists independently. So the Levitical um, prohibition is based upon this uh, ranking, if you will, and St. Thomas talks about um, in, in order of descending severities. But the summation of it is, number one, is to mark the body in such a way. Um, the ultimate mark, you've got to remember that the ultimate marking of the body for, the, for God's chosen people, the sign of the covenant is circumcision. It's interesting enough that currently what we're seeing is an increase in popularity of tattoos and an actual militation against the practice of circumcision. Mm, uh, we're seeing that cumulatively. Uh, across the board in humanity but circumcision is is uh, you know we started this broadcast this talk about uh, what does knock on wood mean Uh, what does marking the body mean and so the ultimate mark anytime you talk about marking the body the ultimate mark is what circumcision and so um, for uh, a woman the ultimate mark um, is that 
she she falls under the mark of circumcision when she marries a circumcised man, a man who is living in relationship to the covenant. Now, there are a lot of circumcised men currently who are not living in relationship to the covenant. So right. the demon is drawn to this to this conflict. Uh, you wear the mark, but you do not. You you know you you talk to talk, but you don't walk to walk. You wear the mark, but you you don't wear the mark of baptism. And so the demon is looking for that. Now the next mark is the indelible mark of baptism, which is um, the circumcision of the heart. This is that that mark on our forehead that says our our bodies are marks for Christ. Um, and so as a man, if we bear the mark of, of circumcision, we bear the indelible mark, and we're engaged in anything that is unchristlike, we immediately come to the attention of the demon because we're living a life of contradiction. And so that's the, that's the, the first level, if you will, is what is the ultimate mark, and that is um, circumcision and the, um, and the indelible mark of baptism. Then you look at, does, are you seeking to identify yourself with another group? Is it tribal? Is it a clan tattoo? Is it a tribal tattoo? Is it um, something that supersedes, if you will, um, the mark of baptism? And this is part of the, the thing that the servicemen got into in World War II, is, is we first started to see tattoos come home. The only people who were tattooed in 1945 were Samoans and, and U.S. military, um, essentially. These were, the, these were the two tattooed groups in, in all the world. Now, there was a lot of ritualistic scarring, and, and still is, in Africa and in, in the Semitic tribes, is there's ritualistic scarring. This has the same impact as a tattoo, as it identifies you with a group. The, um, and so this identifying with a group, other than um, the baptized or... Um, your family, this was an issue because you wanted people to, to identify you based upon the mark on your body. It's interesting. You got, you that got 30 seconds, before, Kyle, 30 seconds, my friend, 30 seconds. Go ahead. It's interesting that we all wanted to be identified as children of God um, previously for centuries. And that was through either circumcision and or the indelible mark of baptism. We all wanted to be identified in that way. Now, why do we want to be identified in these other ways? Good comment. Good stuff. That's a wrap. Wednesday War Caller, Jess Romero, Kyle Clement. We're going to pick this up. Next time I have Kyle on, we're going to pick this up on decommissioning. Kyle, last comment. Oh, Jesse, thank you for having me. And it's always good. I look forward to seeing you at Fullness of Truth. And if anyone can get there, I, I strongly urge you. It'll be a good time. Amen. I'll be pushing it all week. God bless you, my friend. And we'll talk to you soon. That's a wrap. EOW, end of watch, War College. See you next time.